In the consult, we discuss cases that are sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. This is part three and the final episode of our discussion of Joe D'Angelo, the serial rapist and killer known by names such as the Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist, Original Night Stalker, and the Visalia Ransacker. Joining me again is Bob Drew, who is also a retired FBI profiler and my partner on this case in profiling the offender, who was at the time still unidentified. Well, I don't think we're ever going to know exactly why he stopped in 1986. He had a lot going on. He was getting older. He He had a family. But around that time is when DNA analysis was really developing and in fact, being used to solve crimes. And that could very well have been a reason. I think it was a combination of factors, but I do agree he was sophisticated enough. There was a real element of immaturity to a lot of his crimes. He was sophisticated enough to know how to avoid apprehension for so many years. And I think it was very likely had DNA been fully developed, he likely would have worn a condom Another thing that I thought in his real life, I thought that people would find him socially awkward. In several of the cases, the victims described him as muttering and mumbling to himself. They didn't think it was part of the act. They thought it was real. And there was one case in Visalia where he was followed by somebody I always believe that was a true sighting of the Visalia ransacker, but he was followed and he started mumbling and muttering and getting very nervous and talking to himself. So I thought this was a characteristic that would definitely carry over into his normal everyday life when he was confronted with stressful situations that he couldn't handle. So I thought people would think he was strange. Certainly didn't think that he had any type of intellectual disability because he was too prepared and adaptable. But I thought those who knew him would consider him odd. And particularly if they had any kind of conflict with him, I thought this was a noticeable characteristic that probably carried through to his everyday life, particularly if he had conflict or stress. Because of his crimes, we're talking a lot about inadequacy, but it's in a, at least partially sexualized interpretation. But I think socially he was inadequate also. The indication of him needing control in order to feel comfortable, which we kind of assumed was because he was compensating for a lack of control in his life otherwise. His inadequacy was not just sexual context, but was overall was pervasive in his life, socially certainly as well, and probably in interactions with anyone, but in particular in interactions with potential romantic partners. I'm sure 
that this inadequacy was something that he wrestled with. The control that he exerted and the means by which and the efforts by which he got that control indicated that he needed that level of control to be comfortable. And in the world outside of his crimes and in normal interaction with, whether it be with women or with just people in general, you don't have that kind of control. So if you need that kind of control in order to be comfortable, in order not to be worried and looking out the window or repeatedly checking things, if you need that kind of control, you're unlikely to be able to attain that in scenarios outside of doing what he did outside of these extreme control-motivated crimes. So I would imagine in his life, he would seek opportunity to be in control and also probably be frustrated in areas where he could not gain that kind of control. Well, neighbors describe having conflicts with him. He would get very angry. He'd mutter to himself. He'd pace around. And one neighbor saw him in his backyard pacing around saying, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. And he even left a death threat on this neighbor's answering machine. And then another person described him as not being very friendly. They had nicknamed him Crazy Joe. What we saw when he was committing his crimes, when he was frustrated or there was conflict, really carried over into his normal life. It was odd. Those interactions that his neighbors had with him those are not normal. Those are odd. While they might not have thought, oh, he's the Golden State Killer. He's a serial killer. I know they thought something was off and they were likely very frightened by him. And look what he does when he has a conflict of some sort with his neighbor. People have conflicts with their neighbors all the time. The normal response, even when it's inappropriate, if there's an inappropriate back and forth or someone reacts badly, is not to leave death threats for them. I'm not saying it can never go that way, but that's an unusual escalation to be pacing and muttering to yourself because you've got some kind of dispute in the neighborhood is not normal behavior. Yep, there are people who are not serial killers who definitely get that upset. I mean, there are instances of road rage where people escalate very quickly, but to see that in a neighborhood setting with people that he knew at least as neighbors and had certainly in that context would have had some opportunity to just address the issue or the conflict verbally and reasonably. But instead, when he's met with any resistance, he escalates and either mutters to himself and works himself up so he's very angry and or leaves a death threat is certainly something that I would say is consistent with what we see in his crimes. We talked about this early on in the case, years before his apprehension. This is how he would present himself in certain situations. It was consistent through his crimes. He's not going to present himself that way to everyone, but he likely had done this many times. He does not handle things that don't go his way very well. Not at all. You called his crimes compensatory compensatory for not being able to handle things not going his way. One of the things that we also thought, and this may seem obvious at first glance, but we thought he was very proficient with firearms. In the draft report that I wrote, I originally put he potentially had law enforcement training. 
our boss at the time had asked us to take that out because it was too strongly worded. And so we went with some formal firearms (laughs) training, but he was proficient and familiar with firearms. He stole them during the Visalia burglaries, and then he used them and he used them well. He was able to fire his weapon in highly stressful situations, and he was successful at it. And we thought that required practice. And he likely had some form of formal training in the use of firearms. And then kind of in line with the fact that he would boast about himself during these crimes, he likely boasted about his ability to use firearms and maybe have possessing a lot of weapons. What we came to find out when he was identified and arrested was that he had been a police officer and he had been a police officer during a portion of the time he was committing these crimes. When the Visalia ransackings were going on, he was a police officer in a town that was maybe about 15 minutes away. And then he moved up to the Sacramento area and became a police officer up in Auburn, which was right up there. He was eventually caught shoplifting and he was fired for that incident. He had shoplifted a hammer and I believe it was dog repellent spray. The store clerks were able to subdue him and tie him up until the police arrived. The police described him being emotional and crying and he subsequently was fired from that job. This occurred right before the crimes started down in Goleta. So It was in July of that year that he was caught shoplifting. And then in October of 1979, he attacks the couple that end up running out in opposite directions and he gets chased by an FBI agent. Everything goes wrong. And then after that, so he really started killing right after he is fired from the police department. I think his proficiency with firearms, his calmness in a shooting situation, his ability to be proficient with firearms under stressful circumstances, was a departure from what we saw in many other of his, his behaviors, such as his nervously checking the male victims or looking out the window nervously. And so when we were talking about it, that was part of why we said he had to have had some kind of formalized training, because minus that, you would wonder if someone like him, who is inadequate and insecure in any type of confrontation, would be able to keep a a cool head and focus. But the level of training that he had, and the fact that it was deadly force versus whatever force was coming at him, gave him this ability to remain calm, this comfort in applying deadly force that he didn't have when he was applying any other kind of force. Or when force was being threatened toward him, he was not comfortable. And then the idea of law enforcement or some kind of quasi law enforcement experience on his part or involvement on his part, you and I saw that as being very consistent with his inadequate personality, which we had to explain, especially especially to groups of law enforcement officers. But that something where he would have the upper hand, where he would be perceived as being in control, what he would feel in control would be very attractive to him. 
he might not have been an attractive candidate or certainly not somebody that they wanted to see once they got to know him, may not have wanted to be a long-term employee, but you can certainly see why the interest would be there in an occupation that could be perceived as being pursued by someone who is strong, who is competent, who is not afraid of confrontation, and who luckily has deadly force right at their side in case things get out of control. We didn't put it in there ultimately, and I can understand the the rationale that would keep it from going into an official report because it's just something that would be consistent. And there might have been other occupations that would have been just as consistent or almost as consistent in providing him those feelings. But the firearms thing made total sense and was something that I think, regardless of editing, was left in because it did make so much sense given the rest of observed behavior of this subject. I was not surprised at all that he was in law enforcement. As a law enforcement officer, as we know, we have a lot of control. We have authority. And we have power. And I think that was a major attraction for him. But I also think it could have been frustrating for him because we have a lot of internal chain of command and rules we have to follow. And I think that could have been very irritating to him. I think that's right. And I also think that although from the outside looking in as a police trainee, you think, well, how could I not be safe? Or how could I, how could control ever be taken from me? Because I have a gun and I have a badge and who would ever, how could anyone ever gain the upper hand? And I know from personal experience, and certainly it is the experience of anyone I've ever known in law enforcement, that you quickly find out all those things can be quickly useless, given the restraints of your job, the element of surprise, the higher standards to which you're held. So you can very easily get into situations where you are physically threatened and you are not able to apply deadly force in response. I think that part would be quite a negative for him in his actual experience of the job. My guess would be that he would be very controlling as long as it wasn't challenged and probably not want to be in a confrontational situation unless he had plenty of backup any other time. Yet, as a co-worker, I'm sure he was one who wanted to impress people with his physical prowess and his fearlessness, etc., even though his actual character was very different than that. And it was likely to have delayed his violent tendencies for a bit. And then once he's fired, then there's at that point nothing that's going to hold him back. He's been humiliated. And he's been denied occupying a role of of control in his daytime life. So that redoubles the need for him to have even more control in his criminal life. So one of the things when he was apprehended that I was surprised about is that he was older than I thought he would be. I wanted to answer for investigators was, was he in the military or not? Because he boasted about being in the military several times. He said he had been in the army. Investigators did believe that 
because he was committing crimes in so many different jurisdictions that he was being moved from military base to military base. So I wanted to answer the question, did we think he was in the military? I thought he was younger. And I thought potentially when he was committing the crimes in Visalia that he might've been in high school. So by the time he was committing the sexual assaults, I didn't think he'd been old enough to have been in the military. At the time, he wasn't in the military when he was committing his crime. So that wasn't the reason that he was so mobile. However, he had been in the military. He had joined the Navy in September of 1964. So he had served some time in the military. So I was surprised because of the immaturity to his crimes that he was older. And in fact, when he was committing his crimes in Visalia, he was 28 and he was a police officer. And I was surprised by that because I really thought he was going to be at least 10 years younger. I think part of the misleading thing about the impression that his reported behavior reflected was someone inadequate, someone nervous, If you were to say right off the bat, looking at his crime, we quickly picked up on inadequate, compensatory, et cetera. But to skip everything else and say, so he must be a 28-year-old police officer. You don't know. That doesn't sound right. So those two things were incongruent. And part of that is that without the understanding of that personality seeking, basically, his seeking involvement in perhaps the military and almost definitely law enforcement, was in and of itself compensatory. It's hard to know where compensation ends and actual legitimate motivation for a certain type of life begins. There are some aspects of law enforcement that he might have found very satisfying in a compensatory way, but as we discussed, ultimately that would not have been ideal for him because there is potential of having control wrested away from you and physical confrontation with people where you can't react the way that would keep you safe from any harm. But I think overall, there was a lot of emotional immaturity that took place and it had nothing to do with his intellect and it had nothing to do with his chronological age so much. But it certainly wouldn't surprise you if he had been younger because it would probably be more likely with a younger offender. In his case, he was very immature throughout the time he was committing these crimes. And and so to think that he might have started earlier was not something that would have been unusual at all. Well, I definitely had tunnel vision. I thought for sure he was in high school. And I and I never one thing that we never did when we were working in the behavioral analysis unit is put a chronological age on offenders. We no longer did that in the BAU because we found that chronological age can be thrown off by emotional age. So we would describe emotional age versus chronological age. I never put an age on him. I never told investigators he's white male between 25 and 35 at any point in time. We never did that. But back in the day, back in the early days when this started, they did do that. And it could be very accurate. It was often very accurate. But I then know that there had been one case where it was completely off. It was determined while the individual had served many years in prison and that likely stunted his emotional growth. And that's why they were so off on the age. So they sort of got away from putting a chronological age. But my own bias, I was convinced that he was much younger. So I didn't think he could have been old enough to have served in the military. 
I thought he likely joined a police department instead and would have been old enough to have done that. But I thought to have joined the military and served wouldn't have been possible because he jumped from the Visalia ransackings to the Sacramento sexual assaults. So he wouldn't have had time to have done that. I also thought because he had gone to such great lengths to disguise his identity that he never would have provided a personal detail that would have led to his identification because it would have been very easy. In fact, law enforcement did tremendous amount of investigation, checking names at military bases and trying to match people up and cross-reference and cross-check. And they didn't have any luck because during the times the crimes were committed, he was not in the military. And I didn't think he was in the military, but again, I never thought he had been in the military at all. And I think that's where I missed was his age, just chronologically thinking, oh, he has to be a teenager when he's in Visalia. So that was a good lesson. His chronological age never matched his emotional age. And that's why we saw him in court the way we saw him. The fact that he served in the military, for instance, in, in World War II, just as an example, folks went off to the military at a very young age and they came back after the war. And many of them described that as being an interruption to their social and emotional development. They were in late adolescence. They joined the military. Then there was the military. Then they'd be returned to this place where everyone else who stayed home had matured along regular lines. And they were in some ways much more worldly than people who'd stayed behind, but in some ways emotionally and socially stunted for having those years, having been omitted from their normal development. The prison experience, again, that's another one where, yes, they know things that people who weren't in prison don't know, but they're missing out on the life that takes place when you don't go to prison. So in those ways, I think military service and prison sentences, although obviously very, very different, have one potential commonality, depending on the person who experiences them, and that is, it plucks you from a life that you've lived up until then and is going along a certain trajectory. It gives you very different experiences. And then it places you back into that, that life that you had been plucked from. And you're supposed to continue on in a regular trajectory. While the experience of the military may in many ways make you more worldly, in other ways might delay or modify how you mature along lines aside from that. As you said, chronological age is very tough because of that, not just because of those two experiences, but numerous experiences. You know, whether it be children in military families who go overseas, and then because their parent goes overseas and they live in another social environment for a number of years, and then they're returned back to the neighborhood that they left or a similar one. It's very hard to look for the normal flag or the usual flags, I'll say, of progressing along the maturity continuum because what they've experienced and has taken them out of that and placed them somewhere else where they may, it may speed up some aspects and retard others. I think it's a good thing that profiling by and large 
now leaves or should leave out references to chronological age, at least specific. Obviously, if there's, there is something that, that is definitely attributable and only attributable to a certain age, then fine. Or if there's been numerous eyewitness accounts that say that someone appears that way, I know that we would put in there that eyewitness accounts say that he appears to be, but it still doesn't say that that is his actual age. There are younger folks that look older, there are older folks that look younger, et cetera. Let's talk about his presentation in court. Maybe a good way to end. He was wheeled in a wheelchair, mouth gaping open, looking like a confused and feeble old man. When I saw him, I didn't think he was faking. I thought this was probably the truest version of himself, even though I think that cameras caught him doing calisthenics in his jail cell. But then he gets exposed in front of everybody. All his control is taken away. And this is what he comes back to. All his external control is gone at that point. Both socially, certainly sexually, criminally, in any aspect of life, his control is gone. He is in physical custody. He's inadequate. In his relationship with the external world, he is inadequate and out of control. He turns his focus inward, where within himself is the last modicum of control that he has in life. So he doesn't interact with this world that has control over him. He turns inward and says nothing and does nothing, is almost zombie-like in his appearance because he's withdrawn completely at that point. His attempt to be a dominant force and a, a controlling person in the external world is over, and he knows it. And I don't think he can help it. No. Just like he couldn't help it during his crimes. He can't help how he reacts when he loses control. It's almost his way of having a temper tantrum. Your last freedom is what goes on inside your own head. And his last control is what's going on within him. So he's not complying. He's withdrawing. Everything seems stacked against him. All of his crimes, etc., are piled upon him. People are now aware of all the things he's done. And he's being faced with formal accusation in court from his years in, in law enforcement. Even more than most, he knows exactly what that means. He retreats. He retreats within himself. So you can look at him all you want. You can ask him questions. He's going to minimize his interaction with the external world. And he's going to retreat to the safety of and the control of the world within himself in his own head. And that's where he's going to reside. No explanations, no, no interactions, just his final small area of control. And in June of last year, Joe D'Angelo pled guilty to 13 counts of first degree murder, 13 counts of kidnapping to commit rape. And as a result, he received multiple life sentences. Unfortunately, Due to the statute of limitations, he was not charged with the sexual assaults, but as part of his plea agreement, he was required to admit to all of them in court. 
I think most likely in his interpretation, that was just a formality. It was over once he'd been apprehended. Life as he knew it, his chance to ever be a significant man was over. So pleading guilty just saved him the pain of having a prosecutor painstakingly describe to the court the horrific crimes that he committed and have everyone inside that courtroom and across the nation sit in judgment of him and understand what a sad and inadequate, antisocial and violent individual he was. Much better just to remain silent. He's old and he's just going to say nothing except guilty and then go and quietly do his time. On that note, Bob and I will conclude our discussion and profiling of Joseph James D'Angelo. Certainly, serial killers share many of the same characteristics. However, there are many differences between them as well. Just look at how some other notorious killers such as Ted Bundy and Richard Ramirez presented themselves in court with all their theatrics. Ted Bundy even represented himself, truly in contrast to D'Angelo. So I'd like to end with this thought. There is no one-size-fits-all profile of a serial killer. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening.